friends. Welcome to Mr. Rewalk, here Mr. Robot Recap Show, brought to you by a stand-up comedian and a depressive hacker. I'm Devlin. And I'm Erin. What's new with you? Well, um, in honor of Joanna Wellick, uh, I've been making a lot of pickles lately. That's disgusting. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? There's something I love about that character, even though I, like, part of, well, we're going to do a prediction uh, episode later, but part of me is like, that woman might be the most evil one of them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or not. Who knows? <laughs> but uh, yes, yeah, so I've just I've got a lot of uh, fermenting cucumbers sitting around my house. It's the best. I've been off pickles ever since I saw that episode. <laughs> Is that why I tried to bring you a jar and you said no? <laughs> <laughs> Fine. Well, it doesn't hurt my feelings now that I understand. <laughs> right, I should have been forthcoming. So this is uh, part two of the season two premiere. Uh, once again, we're going to pick a, a really awesome song that took place in the show. I in particular love this because I am an unironic Phil Collins fan. Like um, one of the first two cassette tapes I ever bought myself was Genesis Invisible Touch. <laughs> Do you still have it? Not the tape. Now I have a digital, well, I have it in my Spotify library. In the memories. So this song plays in the background of one of my favorite scenes in the whole series. Uh, it's Phil Collins' Take Me Home. At the end of the previous episode, Scott Knowles had decided that he would be the chief executive who goes to drop off this money uh, for the ransom. Um, he brings the bag of money and is confronted by a, a bike courier, who I think maybe you, you think um, like they're the ransomware liaison, but they're kind of just um, tasked with delivering this package to Scott Knowles. Yeah, I think he's a real bike messenger because, and I love this detail, he makes him sign for the package. <laughs> That's, you know, he's the real deal. Which he does. So what arrives for him is, it looks like a messenger bag or something. Uh, and inside it, there's an F Society mask. He's given 10 seconds to carry out this direction or all the banks are going to be bricked. Inside the mask is written, put me on, burn all the money. It's such a great scene. And I think um, it, it reminds me of in the, the almost the first scene in the series when Elliot is walking out of Ron's coffee and he just says, I don't give a shit about money. I was thinking about that in this case because you can tell that money doesn't motivate them. This was really just to demoralize and to attack E-Corp. I love this scene so much that instead of usually uh, around the holidays, I put on you know the video of the logs burning in the fireplace. <laughs> I love those. I'm going to watch this on a loop. <laughs> just the burning watch, money? <laughs> I'm going to watch that money burn, and I'm going to play Christmas carols behind it. That's, That's how much I love it. <laughs> so when we cut away from what I think is a really excellent uh, opening scene. We see um, Philip Price has been called to a meeting. He's been called by some government representatives and they want to talk about how to handle the situation. He wants more money and more time, but they're telling him that they've already spent, I believe, $900 billion in 30 days. That's a lot. That, I hope I have that figure right. That seems like an awful lot. I can see it on my screen. <laughs> but they're, actually, they're in a catastrophe. People are hoarding money. Um, the big three, they say, are failing. And eCorp needs time to rebuild their database. These government officials have also called him there because they need to ask him to resign. What do you think is their goal with his resignation? Do you think that they 
they blame the public's lack of confidence in E-Corp in him? I think they are trying to, in a way, sanitize the situation. So if they can get rid of some key players, people who might be seen to be responsible for the situation they're in, um, then they can all kind of look like they're clean of how the bailout was handled. Because they're, they're bailing out E-Corp. It's almost like uh, Travis Kalanick and that new Uber CEO. <laughs> Price resists the idea that he should resign, as I think we know he would, because I think his ego is limitless and oh, yeah. he believes his power is too. He actually tries to compare what they're doing to uh, FDR's New Deal, which was meant to pull America out of the Depression. Um, I don't think they're having any of that. He tells them when he's pushing back, the public needs to believe that the government has it under control. And a line that really sticks with me here is, um, a con doesn't work without confidence. <laughs> he has really good delivery for that line, too. It's really a, a, an interesting scene for him. Um, I mean, he's one of the few people here where I don't think there's any light side to him. You know, he's kind of a consistent villain. <laughs> hey, that's right, actually. And, uh, and he's not going to let go. So this meeting, um, it doesn't take, and they're all left to struggle with the challenge of how do they make the public feel confident in the government, in the banks, and in these big corporations that control so much of their lives. Next we see Joanna Whitlock again, and it seems at first like it's a kind of um, familiar situation, but we find out that we actually are introduced to a new character in this scene. That's right, because we've seen her in these sort of, in these BDSM scenes before, and so I think the takeaway from this is this isn't necessarily a feature of her relationship with Tyrell, but this is a predilection of hers more generally. So we see here with a new partner. And the note I have here is, Joanna, what is it with you in the fucking cutlery? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. She kind of demonstrates uh, to this partner a lot of the same things that she did to Tyrell, I think. Uh, it really seems like she's kind of calling the shots in both of these relationships. And I think even more so with him, um, because he doesn't seem as assertive or in control as Tyrell. Absolutely. And maybe that's interesting to her at this point. But we're going to come back to these two a little bit later. We have a couple introductions of new characters in this episode. And this next one, I truly like a lot. Me too. Um, so we get introduced to Dom. Uh, Dom is what she goes by. Her name is Dominique de Piero. And I think I like her because she's really nice to the guy who works at the deli. Yeah, yeah. I think that they do a really good job of making her seem like um, a considerate character, but also very smart, kind of, in the, in the first introduction to her. Well, because at one point she speaks to, so she's, um, she has an American accent that I can't exactly place, but she speaks to the, uh, the man behind the counter in Farsi. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. So some hint of a backstory there for her, but we don't know a lot. The one thing I hate about this scene is, I think you can probably guess where I'm going. <laughs> the lollipop thing? <laughs> There's just something so weird about seeing a grown woman eat a lollipop. It was really weird to me. I think that they were kind of trying to show that she's like a, a quirky character who's not really like your normal business suit FBI agent. But I think that it also kind of comes off as maybe being a little like condescending, or how would you phrase it? I think it's infantilizing in a weird way because, yeah. like, I perceive those as like those are things for children. Yeah. So it's weird, and especially the juxtaposition between that and where we next see her. Right. It turns out that Dom is uh, an FBI agent, and when she finally gets to work, um, her task for the day is to interrogate Gideon Goddard, who has ended up going to the FBI because Elliot would not cooperate with him in the previous episode. 
The new character is introduced, and it seems like almost every scene in this episode. And once we get back to Elliot, who's watching um, a basketball game as he does every day, he is introduced to Ray and his dog Maxine. I think Maxine is a hilarious dog name. It is pretty good, especially because it's not really the kind of dog that you would think Ray would have. Yeah, she's like a bloodhound or something. Um, I don't know what to make of Ray at first. Ray knows everyone, and he in particular knows a lot about Elliot. Yeah, he does, and I think that I would be a little more sketched out than him if somebody randomly came up to me asking for help with their computer. I think, too, by this point in the series, you're automatically a little bit suspicious of <laughs> everyone. Um, Mr. Robot says he should do it. But Elliot wants to stay analog. Yes, and so that's how he keeps Mr. Robot powerless, and so he says no to Ray's request and tries to give him the brush off. This next scene is kind of cool because uh, you see Nancy Grace uh, playing Nancy Grace. <laughs> I always kind of second-guess myself after I thought that they really had Obama in one of the earlier episodes, but I think that this actually is Nancy Grace. I think I saw it in the credits. I think this is legit. Wow, that's awesome. Um, so I, I like that kind of nod uh, to reality. Um, uh, we see it's Joanna and um, the new, I guess I'll characterize him as the new boyfriend. I don't really know how to characterize their yeah, relationship. That seems like a fair way, I guess. Uh, we learn he's a bartender, which surprises me given all of her class and power aspirations mm -hmm. and she doesn't want them to be seen together yeah that, that's definitely very curious because you don't really know why that's the case yet not exactly and so they can't leave at the same time so joanna's driver um comes to get her yeah i, I guess it's not really it's not clear to me at least where they're coming from and where they're going but it seems like the driver mr sutherland is escorting joanna back to her home and I assume that's the case because the next time we see her, we see her uh, with the baby and there's been a present left behind for her. Yeah, and, and she opens up the presents and it's not really clear what it is or who it's from. And then uh, she finds out that there's actually a phone that's been delivered as well. Yeah, so at first it's a music box and so it looks like that's all that it is. And then when she flips it over, this phone has been taped to the back side of it. So we're left to wait what's going to come from that phone. Right. I think that um, just to close off the Joanna bit of this episode, later on she does end up getting a phone call, but uh, she doesn't end up picking it up. She misses the call. So it really leaves you to wonder who sent this to her and, and what's the purpose of it. Yes. And so that missed call, uh, I think, just heightens your, uh, I don't know if it's anxiety or the anticipation of who's going to be on the other line. Yeah, yeah. We also see uh, Nancy Grace is talking about um, Tyrell being the person who's behind the 5-9 attack. So it makes you wonder if Tyrell is trying to reach out to Joanna or, or what, where is he? Yes, because I think one thing we're all waiting for is for him to resurface. But we don't get that satisfaction in this scene. We're just left with the gift and to wonder what's going to happen next. Now that we've closed off uh, Joanna's storyline, we can move over to Angela's storyline and kind of see that through to the end of the episode. She's, um, she's working as a PR manager at eCorp. I think that she's still not worked there for very long. But right now, she's kind of trying to deal with um, all the negative coverage that's coming out of this hack. I also, they show really clearly that her coworkers hate her. Oh, yeah. And they just are wishing for her to fail. Who side do you want? See, I'm... Oh, I'm so curious about Angela, and also I'm not on anyone's side at eCorp generally. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to root for Angela, um, because it looks like she's not going to be able to get this interview lined up, and she's going to have a big fuck up on her hands. 
I think that the scene, it, it kind of reminded me or echoed back to the, the shoe store scene, where I think that she kind of finished her heel turn. Because I think that especially when you compare Angela at the beginning of season one to this scene in season two, she just is like kicking ass and taking names. And she does a really good job of um, not only like getting the interview, but getting it under her terms. And um, it seems like she also does a good job of impressing the boss who, who came over to chastise her. <laughs> it's interesting because you can see in her body language that um, she's a little bit scared but she knows she has to be bold like that. I think that's also symbolized by all of her um, stuff in her cubicle. It's like, don't call it a dream, call it a plan. Like, she's still, uh, <laughs> she's outwardly very confident, but that's because of all of this, like, self-help stuff that she's been doing. And so she wins, she gets the interview, she gets it on her terms. And then the next time that we see her pop up in this episode, she's at a bar and she's having a conversation with the lawyer who had finally agreed to represent her in the Sludgegate case. And I, I wasn't really sure what came out of this scene, actually. I found it kind of hard to understand. What did you take from it? So you learn there's been some back conversations between uh, the lawyer and Angela about Angela was only supposed to take this job as a temporary measure. This is the job at decor? Yeah. And she informs the lawyer that she's going to stay. So she said a change of heart. She's had a change of heart, and that leads the lawyer to a really pointed analogy. Um, I hated the analogy, and that's why I kind of like skipped through this scene when I was rewatching. Well, it's a lousy analogy, and so, I mean, for anyone who maybe hasn't seen this episode yet, <laughs> Yeah, you're going to need to spell it out. So it's a, a woman is sitting at a bar, and a man comes up to her and says, you know, would you spend the night with me for a million dollars? Some large some, amount of money. <laughs> some huge amount of money. <laughs> And so she thinks about it for a minute, and uh, she's into it. And then the man says, okay, well, if that's the case, you know, would you come home with me for a dollar? <laughs> and she says, that's outrageous. You know, what kind of a woman do you think I am? And he says, well, we already established what kind of a woman you are. Now we're just negotiating. <laughs> it is, like, very eloquent, I guess. This is a little crude. I, I think it's crude, and it's also um, kind of, it feels sexist to me. I could be wrong about that but anyhow i don't love the analogy but the the inference of course is that the lawyer saying angela's character is not exactly what she would <laughs> present it to be and yeah. she's not as clean as anyone um would have thought this is echoing back to that shoe store scene again i think because it really seems like um exactly what the salesperson had warned her of, of about becoming kind of too absorbed by the e-corp culture it seems like that's exactly what's happened and it's fa happened so fast that's the other shocking part of it. Um, and then Angela does something else we don't expect her to do. Right. Uh, some stranger just comes up to her at the bar, introduces himself, and it seems like she actually takes him home. The next thing, this is such a weird scene, and you're going to see this replay in different permutations in the rest of the season. But Angela started listening to all of these affirmation tapes. Ta they're probably not tapes. I get it's 2017. <laughs> um, but like she's listening to this set of affirmations about success and money and repeating them out loud. Like it's so, it's almost culty. And I think yeah. maybe it's supposed to represent how thoroughly brainwashed she's being by all the stuff around her. Yeah, that's definitely a good interpretation. One little catch I noticed here is that when we see as Angela is beginning her affirmation tapes, 
we see a little betta fish on her side table. Is it QWERTY? I believe it's QWERTY. Because Elia must not have the fish at his mom's place. Well, no, you never see it um, in his new home, and so it's nice to know, you know that he's being taken care of. Angela's real MVP. So let's, uh, there's a lot of scenes in bars in this episode. Um, we see Gideon at a bar. He's having a drink by himself. He's just watching the news. And of course, it's all doom and gloom. Um, there's nothing good happening for anybody. And then um, a guy starts hitting on him. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought that it was kind of interesting how they introduced this character. Um, first off, one thing that they kind of mentioned in passing is that it seems like uh, Gideon's partners left him, maybe because of all of this turmoil at work. Um, but Gideon's at the bar, he's not very happy. And of course, all of this stuff um, that he sees on TV, that's a little more personal for him than probably other people who are watching this in the bar. And the guy who comes up to him, um, he knows exactly who Gideon is. And it gets more and more uncomfortable as they continue talking because he knows an awful lot. Um, and, and the most difficult part of it is that he turns to him and says, tomorrow I'm going to be a hero. At what points uh, did you notice that things were kind of taking a bad turn here? I thought they were taking a bad turn when he brings up that, like, this man knows the husband left him. Like, he knows way more than a casual observer <laughs> of the news would know. So you picked it up, like, two lines in. <laughs> well, I think, you know, um, there's something where it's like, it starts like a creepy pickup, but then yeah. it gets even creepier. When did, did it click for it, you? It clicked for me when he was saying that tomorrow he would be a hero. So basically, like, when the gun was in his hand was when it clicked for me. <laughs> and so he shoots it in the head. Yeah, it's, it's once again very graphic, very shocking. I think that um, it kind of, it, it, it takes such a rapid downward turn that it makes it even more shocking because you kind of think that Gideon's out having a good time. And then it really gets turned on its head very abruptly. I think this is sad, too, because when we talk about how very few people in this are, are pure, I mean, Gideon is kind of a force for good the whole way along. Um, and we really like this character, so it's sad to see him go in such a violent, um, unceremonious kind of way. So let's get the last couple scenes of the Elliot storyline, and that'll bring us to the end of this episode. So Ray's back, because he loves basketball, <laughs> I guess. Well, I guess Elliot does, too, so you can't really, can't really blame him. They all love basketball. The trouble here is that they spoke last night and Elliot doesn't remember, so he's losing time. Uh, he's not sure of his actions. And that's really destabilizing for him because that's exactly what he's trying to fight against in this really routine kind of life he's living. Mr. Robot's back and he says directly that they see me. And I think that's a reference to us, to the kind of unnamed viewer. Some more fourth wall breaking. Exactly. And then Elliot erupts into this weird fit of like the most uncomfortable, uncanny laughter. Yeah, it, it was it was kind of uncomfortable to watch. I think. <laughs> well, it goes on for quite a long time. It's um, so it's really unnerving. They still don't know where Tyrell is. Mr. Robot pulls out the gun again, but he doesn't shoot him this time. What was different this time? I'm not sure what's different this time. I wonder if it's that Mr. Robot, because obviously he's been able to take control and make whatever arrangement he's made with Ray, that he's getting what he wants, so he doesn't need to threaten him in that way any longer. That makes sense. He does draw the gun, but then he doesn't use it. So maybe he feels there's nothing to gain for him by doing it. I was kind of thinking that maybe um, he realizes that Elliot is in control, and kind of maybe it's like a futile even attempt. 
But I think that it's interesting that both of those interpretations kind of seem to work out. This co uh, conflict with Mr. Robot gets interrupted because Elliot gets a phone call. And um, I think the suggestion is that it's Tyrell on the other end. Because at first you just hear some breathing and things, but it's clear to us that it's Tyrell. There's no other information than that. And this show is so good at cliffhanger endings for episodes. So they're back in contact. Um, we can anticipate something's going to come from that. I'm excited to get Tyrell back into the mix um, when we start looking at, at other episodes in the season. Thanks for listening to Mr. Rewatch. This podcast was recorded in downtown Toronto. If you enjoyed listening to today's episode, we'd ask you to consider donating to your local Humane Society. Or your ASPCA if you are an American listener. I'm Devlin. And I'm Aaron. Bonsoir.